is Trapwire Week in Review for the week ending September 22nd, 2023. I'm Haley Keen with Trap, a data modeling and analytics firm for the CMBS commercial real estate and CLO markets. I'm with Lonnie Hendry, head of CRE and advisory services, and Stephen Bushbaum, research director. This week, the Fed held interest rates steady, leading to a pullback in U.S. stocks and a jump in treasury yields. But this is only the news for the moment as there were hints of more action to come this year. Most of the talk was focused on the summary of economic projections and the higher for longer narrative. Lonnie, as of now, what does this mean and how should CRE market participants proceed? Yeah, it's been an interesting week, Haley. There was a lot of lead up to the Fed's decision on whether or not they were gonna raise rates. I think Jerome Powell kind of set the stage this week for the higher for longer narrative and kind of dug both feet in. Like he's been saying it, since they started raising rates that they weren't going to make the same mistakes as previous Fed officials where they, you know, raise rates and then start cutting too soon and then have to come back. And so, you know, I don't think that the mass, you know, population of CRE investors or just investors generally have really bought into his narrative to this point. Like if you look at a lot of projections, if you hear a lot of the talking heads on TV, there's been a lot of discussion around rate cuts coming in 2024. And I think yesterday, Powell did a pretty good job of kind of putting that to rest. Like if you look at the dot plot, you know, after yesterday's uh, discussion, the average rate on the dot plot from 2024 went from 4.6% to 5.1%. And when asked if a soft landing was his base case, Powell, you know, pretty emphatically said no. Um, If you look at what yields, uh, treasury yields have done uh, today, you look at the pullback in the market. I think people are starting to realize that this narrative maybe isn't just talk and that there's going to be more substance to it. So if you're in the CRE market, you know, we've talked at length about maybe being early in the cycle and hope not being a strategy. And I think we're going to start seeing those things play out. I was actually interviewed today by a columnist and they were asking about, you know, looking forward to the first quarter of 24 or first half of 24 And I got to tell you, like, I'm not super optimistic that we're going to see some uptick or rebound. Like I, if I was, you know, pegging it today, I would say transaction velocity and volume will probably be even more muted in the first quarter, potentially the first half of 24 than it's been this year, because the rates are what they are. And we're starting to see that across the board. So I don't know, Stephen, if you have some additional perspective, but it seems to me that the narrative is actually changing into action and those effects of the rates have to see their way through the market. And I think we're still early stages relative to what we'll see by the end of this next year. So the longer end of the treasury curve, 10 years and beyond, generally prices what comes next after current conditions. And so what we had been seeing between the, the two-year and the 10-year and what it, what they're signaling was that we we should get some rate cuts, right? It's not, initially it was, well, sometime later in 23, now it's been pushed out to 24. And now it's it's really interesting. It's gone sideways in some ways for 2024. And so getting back to the Fed dot plot, in their June projections, they had 5.6% rate for 23 going down to 4.6 and 24. So cutting 100 basis points sometime over the next year. Well, that's changed now. And they're only projecting to cut rates by about 50 basis points. And the same thing going forward into 25. And so that higher for longer, it's the hawkish pause, I guess is the the best way to put it. 
And what's been interesting is that when you've watched the movements of the tenure on the heels of some of these major pieces of economic news that we've gotten, and after the Fed speak comes out and all the Fed presidents go and do their you know rotation and, and give their projection of, of what each of they think is going to happen, you know, the rates have really kind of stayed on toward the lower bound, I would say, of, of what you might guess could happen on the follow. And so if we do think markets are going to be more resilient, consumer spending has been very resilient in the face of higher interest rates, despite their savings being drawn down. And so if we think that that robustness or resilience will continue, why shouldn't the longer end of the curve get pushed up? And now we just saw that in a big way. In the last two days, the 10 year has gone up 15 basis points. And in the past month, it's gone up about 40 basis points. And so that's going to be really, really painful for loans coming due in the fourth quarter of 23. And we have a pretty significant volume of loans maturing in CMBS space in the fourth quarter. And so it's going to be, I think, very, very interesting. And the podcast will be very relevant to investors to market participants over these next few months. Not that it hasn't always been, but we'll have, I suspect, a lot of headlines to cover. Yeah, I think if you go back to add some context to the the treasuries, the 10-year is a you know a fresh high compared to 2007. And the two-year treasury, which last time I checked was about 5.2%, was hovering at levels that were seen in 2006. So I've seen a lot of posting on social media platforms that this is starting to look a lot like 2007. I'm still not there yet. I don't think we have systemic fundamental problems in the marketplace like we had then. I think we have obviously the interest rates which are acting as a catalyst, but I definitely think there's there's going to be some pain that we haven't seen yet. We're starting to see, you know, some of the other agency folks come out outside of just the Fed. I mean, you said all the Fed folks have their comments afterwards. And Bullard, I saw this morning first thing, he's like, they need to raise rates. And Powell did say that they're, you know, suspecting another 25% basis rate hike before the end of the year. So we'll see if that actually comes to fruition. But Fannie Mae, as an example, they're not projecting any rate cuts until the middle of 24. And they believe that Jerome Powell is going to try and avoid the mistake of, you know, Paul Volcker from 1980, which we talked about earlier. So it's it's really interesting that you're starting to see you know, people buy into this narrative as I was uh, as I was talking about. So you you couple that with multifamily supplies, and you know we've basically had a huge run up in construction starts the last couple of years and deliveries. But it does look like if you look at the data that's, that's just been released, uh, forty four thousand new multifamily properties completed during the first half of twenty three, which was the lowest for any six month period over the last six years, according to Fannie Mae. So you know, maybe some of the supply starts to dwindle that helps support keeping rents generally where they are. Occupancies won't see huge declines. So, you know, I don't want to belabor the macro too much longer, but I just, I think we're very at a very interesting cross in the road. And I would agree with you, Stephen, the next couple of months is going to be very paramount to like where we end up in 2024 and beyond. So just, just one more piece on that point. We've already had a difficult enough time in commercial real estate underwriting exit cap rates and you know, projecting forward a couple of years to say, okay, well, when inflation does come back down and everything stabilizes, well, what does this look like? Well, now we're having to kick it out yet again, further down the road. And 
I think that level of uncertainty, it just to your point earlier about not really expecting to see any material uptick in transaction volume, I think the uncertainty that we continue to have in this environment is just going to make it still difficult to find the, the middle ground and bid ask spreads will probably still remain a, a difficult negotiating point. This week, we also saw some additional color on the Signature Bank commercial real estate portfolio. Yeah, so that's been something that's been top of mind, and we've talked about it quite extensively on the pod in the past. You know, they have the large multifamily rent-controlled component, and so there's concern that there's not appetite for that in the market, given the regulation. But it appears that Marathon Asset Management is bidding on the Signature Commercial uh, Real Estate Portfolio. That was according to uh, Bloomberg. And so we'll see what that actually means. We'll see, you know, does a bid from their perspective actually equate to something that's at a level that allows for transaction? We know that the FDIC effectively had kind of JV'd this. And so there's probably some flexibility based on the extenuating circumstances. Um, But it's good news, I would say, from my perspective, that very quickly after this being taken to market, that there appears to be a buyer that's capable of transacting um, in the market, expressing interest and wanting to bid on the uh, the portfolio. So we'll see what happens with that. For, but for me, at least at this point, I'd say initial green shoot. We'll see what it actually trades, if it actually trades at. Yeah, I think it's going to be very, very telling uh, if we do get good transparency on execution after this is all over uh, to tell us exactly how, how difficult is the rent stabilized or uh, rent controlled portion of the market right now? Because we, we've seen a lot of headlines about borrowers throwing back the keys on these rent stabilized properties because expenses have gone up so much, but yet they can't raise rents. And so it, it just blows up the economics. And for listeners out there outside of New York, if, if you're not familiar with the law that got enacted in 2019, a new law was passed in New York that really changed some of the mechanics for how rent control is set. And so in, in a nutshell, it basically was a much stricter law in terms of what properties are in scope, how or when units can get converted from rent controlled to market rate. And so any operators out there or investors that were planning to convert markets from rent controlled to market rate, all of a sudden just got hosed when this this law passed. And since then, even investors that were familiar with the space and comfortable with it, and it operated fine for years, well, we've seen what's happened to payroll costs, to insurance, to taxes. When your expense line item is growing disproportionately to your your rent and you have no control over that rent item, it's just, it's a really difficult situation. So get back to the transparency comment I mentioned, what kind of execution or what kind of discount we see on the uh, specifically, the multifamily rent controlled portion of this portfolio will be very, very telling as to what investors uh, expect to see in terms of what is the right level for these things to price at. Just one more comment here on the signature commercial real estate portfolio. Just for all the listeners out there, if you are interested in bidding on this pool and you want to reach out to us, please do so. We have deep experience in default modeling and valuation. And so if you are interested in getting in touch with us about our advisory services offering or to talk about the liquidation in general, more than happy to to have that discussion. And last week, we mentioned some special topics that a listener sent over to us. And one of those was insurance. So we're going to dig into that a little bit further this week. We've done some fairly extensive research over the last couple of months related to insurance. And I've been 
shouting from the rooftops internally and will continue to that I don't think this story is getting enough publicity nationwide because of all of the inflation talk, of all of the concern around exit cap rates and underwriting and availability of capital and all these things, the reality is insurance is an expense that's required. It's not really something that you can self-insure away, at least for most people. If you're a large enough firm and you can self-insure, you can get catastrophic policies and and you know fund yourself, that's great, but that's a small percentage of the market. And so we had some some inbounds come in around, you know, just the topic of insurance. And I think what's really interesting now is you're having lenders get really concerned about this and they're almost forcing insurance placement in certain areas. They're not relying on the borrower to submit, you know, a binder for policy coverage. They're reading the coverages to make sure that it's full replacement cost, not some cash value or something less than full replacement cost. And we met with an insurance group this last week, and we're going to be doing a community call with them probably in the next couple of months. It's really interesting to see how just the language in those documents is shifting because the insurers are trying to limit their downside risk, but still provide coverage that is sufficient for lenders to get the okay on. And so we're going to talk about this in more detail in our Market Pulse webinar this week. And this is one, as Stephen mentioned, uh, if you have some challenges or you're facing some stuff in a particular region or market or property type, you should reach out to our advisory team because we've done a fairly extensive amount of research on this. And uh, we'd be happy to talk through what our data suggests relative to current insurance pricing across the asset classes. Just a little bit more on that topic, Lonnie. What's interesting to me, thinking about some of the actuarial side of insurance, right? there's two factors to boil this down in, in really basic terms and maybe even bastardize how this works, but you have the replacement cost of the building and then the probability of a loss, you know, say a natural disaster hitting or a fire breaking out or whatever. And so when we're talking just climate risk, and it doesn't really matter what your view on that is. If you look at the headlines, we've had, what was it, 57 billion in natural disaster losses across the U.S. this year and eclipsed the 2021, which was a record year. And so underwriters are revising both of those elements. The probability of a loss has gone up. And then with inflation, because they're having to insure it to replacement cost, um, well, replacement cost has gone up as well. And so it's it's led to some just absolutely staggering uh, jaw-dropping type uh, rate increases from from what I've, I've seen. Sometimes I think these things are data anomalies and I start digging in more. I'm like, well, no, that's that's valid. Triple digit percent increase for their insurance premium. So replacement cost narrative is interesting, Stephen. So from a valuation perspective, you know, you generally have your market value, willing buyer, willing seller, what they're agreed to transact at, right? Everyone's familiar with that definition. And what's interesting is you see people bragging on social media. It's not as prevalent now, but there for a while, it was like, we bought this asset at 20% below replacement costs or whatever, right? Well, the challenge is for the insurer, if they have a claim and they're insured at 20% below the replacement costs, like that's a big net negative for them and extrapolate that over a bunch of buildings in a central location like Florida or somewhere else where there's been a hurricane, it adds up very quickly and makes a lot of them insolvent. So it's not just a matter of them having significant increases, there's a lot less insurers in the market that are actually writing policies. And so 
you know, part of the discussion we had with the insurance group was kind of redefining what's allowable relative to a borrower submitting what the value of the asset is because supply chain, inflation, all these things have really driven up that replacement cost number. And in most cases, the replacement cost exceeds the fair market value for the asset. Um, but that from an insurance perspective, if that's what your policy says you're going to insure, you have to make sure those things are are, are making sense. And so uh, we said we weren't going to talk too much about this. I feel like we've talked a lot about it, given that we're about to talk about it this next week on the Market Pulse webinar. But you get a little bit of a preview of some of the perspective we're going to provide on the webinar and hope that you guys uh, if you have any interest in that, reach out to us. And like we said, we're more than happy to jump on a call and walk through that with you. And we had another busy week for the office sector with maybe one mixed green and the rest crabgrass. We were trying to find some green shoots, right? And so we're like going through the outline. We're reading through the stories we put together. And I don't know that we have any green shoots and we're kind of stretching maybe on the mixed green. But I think that's just where we're at with the office sector. Although there was... You know, we don't have a story to say, to, to point to today, but there was some discussion about San Francisco having some signs of life in a couple of stories this week in the office sector. So maybe there'll be some transactions over the next couple of, of months that we can talk about positively there. So as far as what we have this week, this first story uh, is according to the, the Mercury News, tenant behind the 2021 floating rate loan is moving on. So PwC is in talks to take about 150,000 square foot at one Santana West office building. That's at 3155 Olson Drive in San Jose. They're also considering space in Sunnyvale. According to the article, the lease in either spot would mean a move for PwC out of their 488 South Almaden Boulevard, which is where the mixed green comes in. So they're, they're going to vacate their current location, which is a negative for that building, which is uh, backed by a $49 million uh, 488 Almaden loan, which is about 390,000 square foot. So a negative for them, but could be a positive for an office owner there at the uh, One Santana West or at the uh, Sunnyvale location. So more to come on this as they make a formal announcement, but they do intend to move out of their current location. Jumping into the crabgrass, we have the New York City Worldwide Plaza that we got some updates on this month. Watchlist comments had noted that the $940 million loan on Worldwide Plaza had been placed on the watchlist over near-term lease expiration and a cash management process was being put in place. The, the subject lease is to a law firm, Cravath, Swain & More, or CSM. They have more than 600,000 square feet and that lease represents a little bit more than 30% of the square footage, and that expires next August. However, it's been known for a while that CSM will be vacating. Back in 2018, Trupp noted that the firm was considering its options, and in 2019, the firm signed a lease for 2 Manhattan West. So CMBS investors will be especially concerned about this one, probability that this office sees a big hole in the rent roll come 2024. In addition, earlier this year, we noted that Bloomberg reported that Nomura could be on the hunt for new office space. And that story noted that the new location would include a reduction of space from the firm's worldwide plaza location at 825 8th Avenue. So the firm is currently the largest tenant at worldwide plaza with over 700,000 square feet. It's almost 35% of net rentable area. And that lease ends in 2033. So the firm does have some partial termination options, which is quite unfortunate. Yeah, I mean, that's a lot of square footage. And it's, you know, it's kind of one of those buildings built in the late uh, 1980s where 
it's got some functional obsolescence. It's got some challenges and it has some really large tenants taking very large swaths of space. And if, and when they decide to vacate backfilling 700,000 square foot in this market, may be a challenge, you know, as you kind of went through the notes there, Stephen, I think I might have a theme for a new rap song though, big hole in the rent roll uh, for 2024. <laughs> right. You know, and so maybe we'll have to do that as an intro song at some point, if the market really does turn bad. I like it. Steven said, let's jump into, I try to avoid the crabgrass, but I guess we're already in there. So let's just stick it out. Uh, WP Carey has announced they're going to bail out on the office sector. So they're actually spinning off uh, part of their operations. And the spinoff uh, does not require shareholder approval. It's a new publicly traded REIT called Net Lease Office Properties, which has about 59 office properties, about 9.2 million square foot of leasable area. And these are primarily leased on single tenant, you know, net lease basis to corporate occupiers. The portfolio overall consists of 62 corporate tenants, a variety of industries, annual rent to the tune of $141 million. Uh, this spinoff is expected to close around November 1st, so it became public today. We'll get some more details as things flesh out. What we know right now is that WP Carey plans to sell 87 additional office properties between now and January of 2024. Those 87 properties were responsible for about $77 million in annual base rent. Um, and we're about 5% of the overall total annual base rent for the company. So this next story that we have for Crabgrass is about the top tenant behind a Pennsylvania medical office building looking to reuse space. So according to fresh September watchlist comments for the $49.8 million Cedar Crest Professional Park, the top tenant will be vacating. This news is even more concerning considering debt coverage and occupancy at the collateral had fallen considerably. The collateral is a 700,000 square foot medical office spread across a number of buildings. Lehigh Valley Health is the top tenant with about 165,000 square feet across three leases. 42,680 square foot lease will end in October and that space will be relinquished. Another 100,000 square feet of space expires at the end of 2024. So investors are gonna be looking to keep an eye on this, this space to find out what happens. These are both storm clouds and silver linings for the asset. The good news is that LVH has taken a little over 7,000 square feet elsewhere in the complex and is expected to add another 8,000 square feet over the next six months. However, the most recent occupancy was 59% down from 68% in 2019. And the debt coverage ratio on a net cash flow basis was 1 spot 1 6 for the first half of 2023, down from 1 spot 4 9 in 2020. So interesting take on that. Even the medical office market has actually been pretty resilient. So it's interesting to hear the story that you just went through, not being a green shoot or even a mixed green, just that sector has been fairly resilient. But I think it shows that there's challenges in every region and every asset class, depending on uh, the circumstance. So I'm going to go through a couple of stories here, a little bit uh, rapid fire. Obviously, I won't be doing this as well as Manus does. I don't have a very good weatherman or school closing voice, uh, but I'm going to do the best I can. So if you're uh, someone that likes to email in and say, that's not quite good enough, I'm giving you permission on this. I understand, admittedly, I'm going to be second place to Manus in doing the rapid fire rundown. So we have a Class A office tower, 300 East 42nd Street, which is expected to sell uh, significantly below the previous valuation. Keith Rubenstein 
uh, Somerset Partners and Jeffrey Kaplan's Meadow Partners um, are handling the 237,000 square foot building, giving it back to the lender, Fortress Investment Group. And so that's from the real deal. No terms have been discussed. We'll report on that once we know. But the expectation is that it's going to uh, sell for well below the previous uh, transaction. Uh, we put out another trading alert this week. And this one is interesting. On a lot of these trading alerts that we've been putting out over the last couple of weeks, our initial communication, our initial outreach or warning um, for some of these properties go back, in some cases, multiple years. This was one that we had notified listeners and readers and subscribers to our products about a year ago, that 225 and 233 Park Avenue South loan, uh, that Facebook was going to terminate its lease at 225 uh, Park Avenue South. So first time, September watch list comments indicate that the third largest tenant, STV, will also not be renewing its lease when it ends in May. STV has 133,000 square feet, which is about 20% of the space. And it comes on the, the heels of earlier reports that the second largest tenant would be shutting down. Uh, BuzzFeed has about 29% of the space, and that was supposed to go until May of 26. So if you look at BuzzFeed, STV, and Facebook together, it's about 90% of the square footage at the collateral as of securitization. So that property was built in 1909 and renovated in 2017 and has about 676,000 square foot. That loan is split across multiple deals, uh, all 2017 vintage, you know, ranging from 45 million up to 70 million um, in pieces. If we go move on here, we have another trading alert that was put out this week on a Tenant announcing that they're going to be vacating their space. This is uh, for a property down in Austin, Texas, uh, Met Center 15. The uh, tenant is Progressive Casualty Insurance. They were the top tenant with about 85% of the space. Their lease was slated to end in early 2026. New commentary comment says that Progressive provided their notice that they'll be terminating their lease effective February 29th of 24. Maybe a leap year got them excited and they went ahead and turned the notice in. They are going to have to pay a termination fee in the amount of about $2.1 million, but really bad news for the operators of that building uh, when 85% of your space is going to be vacating uh, early, and especially given the climate. Austin's been pretty resilient, uh, and that Met Center location has been a really good one over the last four or five years in attracting new tenants, but it'll be interesting to see if they're able to backfill, you know, about 300,000 square foot given all of the sublease space that's available currently. I have one more and I'm gonna turn it back over to Steven for a green shoot. We had another trading alert for a borrower behind the big 2018 SASB loan. Uh, the borrower actually filed for bankruptcy. So for CMBS investors or potential investors, the GSMS 2018 heart deal, according to the uh, real deal, um, if you haven't seen the article, you might wanna check it out. This loan originally had a balance of about $259 million, which was backed by 39 properties, mostly office um, in Texas. A lot of the properties have been sold off since origination. So current loan balance on this deal is about $217 million. And the sponsor under the loan is Hartman SPE. The article notes that a subsidiary of the firm, Silver Star Properties, has filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Um, and in the notes, it says, as it sells off a portfolio of 35 commercial properties valued at around 400 million and spread throughout the Texas Triangle. The piece notes 11 of the 35 buildings are slated for sale next month. 
And the expectation is that those 11 properties will generate proceeds at about $133 million. Initial maturity date for this deal was October of 2020 with a final maturity of October of 2023. So the firm is out of extension options. So it'll be interesting to see how the bankruptcy of the SPE factors into the timing of the return of any principal or refinancing or the if it affects the timeline for sale of the remaining assets. If you would like any additional info on this, you can reach out. We'll be happy to provide you with a copy of the trading alert if you didn't receive one this week. On that note, we can move on to, I don't know if I could call this a green shoot, maybe a green sprig. It's, it's, a, it's an interesting one. It's not our traditional, you know, strictly positive green shoot. So this was a trading alert on a 2021 SASB Kansas office loan that was extended. According to September data, the 232.5 million Asperia office campus loan has been extended. The loan was originated in 2021 with a hard maturity date of August 2023. The extension pushes the maturity date out 12 months. And this loan backs a JP Morgan 2021 Bolt deal. The collateral is a 3.7 million square foot office in Overland Park, Kansas. In May, we noted that the loan was sent to the special servicer due to imminent default ahead of its maturity date. The extension is a positive outcome and a vote of confidence for an asset that had seen its top tenant downsize considerably. The Henley Group worked with the special servicer and the borrower on the extension. The firm noted that a major reason for the loan being extended was due to the sponsor's ability to attract new tenants to the property during a very challenging time. Back in May, we had a Trepwire story reporting that the global engineering firm Black and Viatech had signed a lease for almost 78,000 square feet at the campus. Uh, at securitization, the top tenant was T-Mobile with over 40% of the space. So I guess if we, we want to look back and recap some of the themes that we see from these large office stories, the green shoots, the crabgrass, this gets back to an, an interesting thing that we highlighted in about uh, a research piece that was about a month ago, looking at large versus small balance office loans, and that historically, large balance office loans had outperformed in terms of uh, the delinquency rate and small balance. If we look back to, uh, say, the, the great financial crisis, small balance office loans had a disproportionately higher delinquency rate than these large loans. Well, that relationship is flipped. And we're seeing that come through continually in the headlines with the largest problem loans. Some of these are coming from SASB deals, which historically we've always thought of as the, the creme de la creme. But at the same time, if you think of you know where these properties are, are located for the SASB deals, traditionally they're going to be trophy op office properties in the central business district, the urban center. And so those have been the areas that have been hardest hit by remote work and the trends that we're seeing there. So it's going to be interesting to see exactly how long this continues to play out and if that script gets flipped back to the traditional um, large balance outperforming at some point, but I don't think that's going to be anytime soon. So if you're interested in getting that research piece about the small versus large balance delinquency rates, please reach out, email us at podcast at trep.com. And then another piece that we recently put out was on modifications, where about 80% of the modifications, the loan extensions that we've seen this year are coming from office. The second highest in terms of balance modified comes from retail. And so those two sectors, um, as we'll continue to see, will we'll just be dominating the headlines for, for crabgrass, hopefully retail less so. Yeah, it's interesting, Stephen, the SASB stuff. It's, it's funny how quickly 
perception, reality, definitions can change, right? So SASB deals, by definition, previously were the cream of the crop, the really nice properties you didn't have to worry about. And the narrative that we're seeing now is the opposite of that. No one could have predicted that, the shift in behavior, people not going to the office, et cetera, et cetera. But there's been a lot of SASB issuance. If you go back and look at SASB issuance compared to conduit over the last three years, SASB far exceeds the conduit universe. And to see some of them already seeing challenges like this 2018 deal, you know, that's not that old and it's already seeing some major challenges with bankruptcies, et cetera. So you guys have put out some great pieces on those topics and very timely given where we're at in the market cycle. So let's transition here to the retail market. We have a few stories there. So the first one here is an interesting one. This one was uh, getting some fairly significant Twitter chatter this week. Uh, one of the oldest retail buildings in downtown Miami is in a foreclosure dispute. So on this foreclosure story, uh, this is according to the South Florida Biz Journal, Time Century Jewelry Center in downtown Miami has been targeted on a, a $26 million foreclosure lawsuit um, as the owner is trying to complete renovations to the retail center. Uh, Miami-based City National Bank, which is located there in Florida, filed for foreclosure back on September 12th against the entity TC Metro Mall Investments, LLC. They also filed against the loan guarantor and additional parties involved. The lawsuit concerns a 225,000 square foot retail center. That center is located at 1 Northeast 1st Street. It was formerly known as the Metro Mall. It's a five-story retail center built on 33,000 square foot site back in 1926 and is one of the oldest retail buildings remaining in downtown Miami. So this is a pretty fresh story. So there's not a lot to know about, you know, outside of the lawsuit itself. But as this continues to progress, this will be one that we keep an eye on, given the historical nature of the building and the location in downtown Miami. The next story we have is about a 2012 mall loan that was extended. Back in December, we noted that the special servicer for the $150.8 million Sun Valley Shopping Center loan indicated a modification was being discussed and a modification was being drafted. The loan had missed its September 22nd maturity date. And now finally, after many months, an extension had been noted for a number of months. And finally, that has officially rolled through. The new term pushes the maturity date out to September 2024. The collateral for this loan is a 1.4 million square foot mall in Concord, California. The property is one of two malls that backs a Morgan Stanley 2012 CKSV deal. The other property is the $205.6 million Clackamas Town Center that was extended last year. At securization, the Sun Valley Shopping Center collateral was valued at $350 million, and that value was later lowered to $170 million. For the first half of 23, the debt coverage for this loan on a net cash flow basis was one spot two eight, with occupancy at 92%. So we've seen a lot of extensions on the mall properties. Manus has covered this over the last couple of podcasts. It seems like Borrowers are stepping up, at least with some capital contribution. Lenders are extending the loans. You know, what's interesting for me, Stephen, on these, and we have another extension story that I'll get to in a second, but, you know, these extensions are running out until 2024 or 2025. And based on the lead-in that we had today with the hire for longer, is that really accomplishing anything, I guess would be the question I have. That's a fantastic question. I'm glad you mentioned that. 
because the modification research piece that we did looked at the extension term that was being provided throughout this year. And in the first quarter of the year, really first two quarters, predominantly these were 12-month extensions. Now we're starting to see a lot more 13 to 24-month extensions. And a, a majority of these are 24-month extensions. So to your point, if we're looking ahead at the rate projections that are being provided by the Fed, various economists, heads of, of some major desks, you're exactly right. We probably we should be seeing more 24-month modifications rolling through over the next six to uh, six months or so just to get us through until 2025. Because what's going to end up happening is that that modification is just going to come through. And then after 12 months, well, we're still in the same place. And we end up uh, seeing a situation where the borrower is having to pay more fees to basically replicate this process. So um, in some cases, we also are starting to see uh, a lot more 12-month extension options with another option to extend for another 12 months. So it's not just a straight 24-month. There's at least an, an option in there. You know, what's funny, if malls were out of favor at 3.5% interest, I'm assuming they're still out of favor at 7.5% interest, but we'll see what happens in the next couple of years. We did have a CMBX 6 mall loan that was extended. This is according to Fresh September Commentary. $86 million Chesterfield Town Center has been extended. Our internal TREP cash flow model has been updated to reflect the new term for those of you that are users. The collateral is a 1 million square foot regional mall in North Chesterfield, Virginia. And the loan represents 100% of the remaining collateral behind a 2012 deal. As I mentioned, this is part of CMBX6. The loan was originally set to mature in 2022, October. And at this point, the borrower paid $1.5 million to pay down the loan balance in return for an extension uh, to October of 2023. Same comments indicate the borrower has exercised a second forbearance that was granted, which will extend the loan to October of 2024. There was a conditional um, prepay on the second extension upon execution, which requires the borrower to pay an additional $2.5 million pay down by October 1st, so here within the next couple of weeks. And this will be... Cash managed going forward, all excess cash will go towards hyper-amortizing the loan. Modified default interest will continue to accrue and be due at loan payoff date. And this is another one where if you just look at the numbers at, at securitization, property was valued at $170 million. It's been lowered twice since then to a new value of $91.4 million. So, you know, not great news on the valuation front. But if you want to have a little silver lining and look at this as an annuity, uh, first half of 2023, loan posted DSCR of 1.68. It was 96% occupied. So the property still generates sufficient NOI to cover debt service, but it's just a zombie uh, walking, unfortunately. And then we'll wrap up the retail stories here with one more. This is, uh, I'd call this a green shoot. It's a transaction. we got a retail center in Winter Park, Florida, which I kind of find funny. Sold for $224 a square foot. This property was acquired by JBL Asset Management. The story is from Orlando Business Journal. Uh, this retail complex was built in 1985, renovated in 2018. Sales price for the uh, center was $24.7 million, uh, as I mentioned, about $225 a square foot. If you look at the NOI from 2022, since this is a CMBS deal and we track the financials, cap rate equates to about a 5.75% cap rate. Not bad all things considered, property last sold for about $18 million in 2019. So you're looking at about a 35% appreciation over four years. And the seller was 
tryout advisory group. Uh, so for them, really great transaction, pretty sizable return over four years. And for the new buyer coming in at a sub six cap rate in today's market on retail, I think just shows, you know, how people feel about the retail sector specifically in the Florida markets. And finally, we have some more multifamily comps this week. The first one we have is a 502-unit community in Atlanta that sold for $214,000 per unit. Via North Springs, a 502-unit apartment complex at 7150 Peachtree Dunwoody Road in Atlanta has been acquired by Tishman Spire. This news comes from RE Business Online. The complex was valued at $108.5 million in 2020. The sales price is reported at 107.5 million, which equates to 214,000 per unit. And if we use 2022 NOI as a proxy, the implied cap rate for this would be four spot 19%. The next one we have up is a 264 unit communities that was sold in Santa Ana for 283,000 per unit. 1901, a 264-unit apartment community at 1901 East 1st Street in Santa Ana, California, has been acquired by True America Multifamily in a partnership with PCCP LLC. The news comes from Yield Pro. The complex was constructed in 2016 and was valued at $98.2 million in 2019. The sales price was $102.9 million. Using March 2023 trailing 12 NOI as a proxy, that cap rate would equate to three spot 94%. And the sales price represents a, a per unit basis of 283,000 per unit. So a sub four cap. It, it definitely defies the narrative, right? I mean, we're starting off talking about this higher for longer and the lack of transactions, et cetera, et cetera. Both of these deals, I think, are pretty strong indicators of some resiliency in the marketplace and the multifamily space in particular. So it'll be interesting to track these going forward. I don't think the numbers per unit are outlandish. I mean, relative to what we've seen over the last couple of months, 214 a door or 283 a door, not uh, not crazy. Those are not uh, outlandish per unit values, but the cap rates are pretty, uh, pretty stout. And just a, a fair point to make here. We're using historical cash flows here. So if you wanted to do some back of the envelope math, if you just say, let's assume that NOI is going to grow on this last one at about 5% over the next year, then we could still do the, the traditional direct cap with the next year's NOI over sales price. And when you do that 5% adjustment, that adds about 20 basis points to the cap rate roughly. So that math would get you to about a four spot uh, let's call it four spot one four percent cap rate. And this week we have some programming notes. If you can't get enough of the Trep team and of Lonnie, Stephen, Manis, um, we have three webinars upcoming. So if you're an early listener, you still have time to register for our Friday, September twenty second webinar, which is at eleven a.m. In that one, we'll be diving into our bank loan consortium data. So you really get a deep dive into. CRE and CNI data from large and mid-sized commercial banks, what we're seeing in terms of delinquencies and origination data. So send us an email and we'll give you the link for that one. Our next webinar after that will be Tuesday, September 26th at 12 p.m. Eastern, where Lonnie and Steven will dive into some of that bank data, but also talk about insurance expense trends for coastal hotels and the performance of urban versus suburban office loans. So if you want that invite, that is our Market Pulse webinar. And then lastly, if you're a client, we host monthly targeted trainings where we dive into different aspects of the product and show you how you can use it in your business. So the next 
targeted training will be on Thursday, September 28th at 3.30 p.m. Our own Sumit Grover and Will Moisson will look at trends and data for hotels using our hotel report. They'll also dive into some maturity, CRE distress, and line item financial data. So send us an email for any of those webinars and we'll get you the link and make sure you can sign up. And then another event coming up is the Distress Debt Panel with Olshan Law. Lonnie, you will be participating in that on October 10th in New York City. He'll be alongside our friend Dan McNamara of Popo Capital and Greg Corbin of Northgate. So if you're interested in registering for that free event and you're located in New York City, send us an email and we'll share the invite with you. Yeah, so that panel is taking place on my birthday. So if you happen to attend, you know, I like monster low-carb energy drinks and any type of like, you know, eight-year-old candy sampling, sour Skittles, et cetera, make for a really great day after the panel. We might make you wear a sash and a crown on that panel then. So if you want to just see Lonnie wearing that, you might want to sign up there for this event. Better than Lonnie on the ledge. I can promise you that. There you go. And turning to shout outs, Alan G and Pramod B sent us that story on Silver Star property. So we appreciate you sending that over and we're on the same page here. So keep it coming. Andy B sent us actually boots on the ground photos of two of the crabgrass stories we mentioned in Deerfield. And he said, keep up the good work. So thanks for sharing that. That's really cool. And people can actually send us images or anecdotes about the properties that we're talking about because they live in that area. Logan E is a huge fan and sent us some comments. So we owe you a response and we'll get back to you soon. On Twitter, we had a lot of great engagement because of the Strip Mall Guy episode. So thank you to everyone who's listened to that and reached out to us. Bo B, our friend, said great episode. Chris Hayes said great discussion on TREP. He liked the comments about traffic flow, parking, signage, and TI invested tenants. Stinson D said he the best thing he heard was Strip Mall Guy selling to forced buyers. So thank you to everyone who's reached out about that. Yeah, it was really great to have Strip Mall Guy on the podcast. If you haven't listened to it yet, you should definitely check it out. Really deep dive into that particular asset class. And obviously, he's been in that business 20 plus years. And so he gives some really great insight into how mom and pop tenants operate and kind of his preference for the mom and pop operator relative to the national tenants. Um, and so a really great perspective to hear. I had a couple of other shout outs this week, Haley. Uh, Dan F. and Steve F., uh, out in Sacramento, reached out. I'm going to be going out to uh, to San Francisco and doing a presentation with them first part of November. So really looking forward to that. Got to do a Zoom call with them. Really sharp guys uh, running a really great business and looking forward to talking to their group. Also have a couple of folks that reached out on LinkedIn over the last week or so. Our friend Dan M., who we haven't talked to in a while, uh, but did give me the nickname Texas Legend. So he'll always have a special place in my heart. Uh, him and I chatted back and forth on LinkedIn this week. Howard L. reached out and Robert P. from Counselors of Real Estate up in Michigan uh, sent a nice message over. So I appreciate everybody listening, taking the time to reach out to us. We really do appreciate the outreach and you know the weekly listens. And if there's anything we can do that we haven't covered, talked about, or some things that you'd like to see, please let us know, podcast at trep.com. And as Haley mentioned, we have a lot of webinars and a lot of other things coming up over the next couple of weeks. We'd love to see you guys registering for those events and participating with us in that forum as well. 
So for some background, this is actually our third podcast recording of the week. I think that's a record for the Tripwire podcast team. We had Strip Mall Guy, and I don't think we've mentioned this yet, but we actually recorded with Ethan Penner, who is known as the father of CMBS and actually the creator of the market and the industry. So we had a really great chat with him this week. That episode will be live next week. So stay tuned for that one. And then, of course, we are recording our Week in Review. So thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks for listening triple the amount of times if you're listening to all of these. And we appreciate it. And with that, we'll close. Join us next week as we look at what's happened during the week and how it may be impacting you. If you have a question or just a comment, send an email to podcast.trip.com and subscribe to the Tripwire podcast with your favorite provider. Thank you for listening and stay well. All right.